Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Well, hello, church. It is so good to see you. We've, um, we had a special treat, these videos from our brothers and sisters in Alabama and Michigan and uh, Arizona, and that's always lovely. And it's good to see you here. My sister is visiting from Houston, and so it's lovely to have her with us. And we loved having the Eason's give our greeting, and as we've always said, we love the sound of babies. God put, the, God put the wiggle in children, don't try to take it out, right? That's good, it's important. When you, when you walk into a room, whenever you go to work, when you walk into a store, when you open your eyes in the morning, what is your first go-to take on the state of humanity? When you look at humanity, do you see more darkness than light? Are you see do you, do you tend to believe people are more evil than they are good? You might be surprised to know that all of those type of feelings have a source. They have a, a, a very definable source, but it may be not the one you think. I'm going to start relatively modern. There was a book published in 1651, and relatively modern is not modern, 1651, by, and it changed the whole conversation about how people are and what government should be. It was written by Thomas Hobbes, a philosopher, mathematician, a theoretician, uh, and the book was called Leviathan. Uh, the name is taken from biblical sources, but it was meant to be something else. I'll explain. This book gave a very pessimistic view of human nature, and even of life itself. The most uh, famous line from his book was the description that life was nasty, brutish, and short. And that comes from his main thesis in that all men are selfish, greedy, and violent, and only held in check by law. And if there is no law, no central government, especially if there is no dictator, no one person to enforce it, no one in control, all will dissolve into chaos. So he was rooting for a Leviathan government that would put its hands over everywhere, and he came up with the term social contract, which you will often hear now. And in short, he would say it is up to the dictator, the king, uh, whatever you want to call him, to create, make, and then enforce the social contract. Because if we didn't, Well, here's the full quote. Now, please forgive the rather antiquated language. If your eyes start to roll a bit, uh, it's only about five sentences. Please be aware, once again, that due to Kirsten's hard work, you have the sermon notes in the description of the video. And this quote's in there. So you can read it again and let your eyes roll again. They need the exercise. Here it is. 
In such condition, they're without a dictator. There is no place for industry because the fruit thereof is uncertain and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, nor the use of commodities that might be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving and removing such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So, we're assuming he never read the book about positive thinking, uh, where we assume that there must be a backstory there, but there is a backstory. He based this upon theology, history, and cultural agreement over the preceding 1,200 years. Some of you may have read Hobbes in school. I've found much later that some high schools are a lot tougher than others. And some books I read, other people haven't. But that's, that's your teachers and your system. And I'm sure you know things I don't know. But if you didn't read Hobbes in school, perhaps you read Machiavelli. I read Machiavelli's classic on control of populations called The Prince when I was in 10th grade. So that lets you know what kind of school we had. Uh, I'm not sure that they were trying to set us up to take over the school, but Machiavellian has even become an adjective about behavior and attitudes. He had a very low opinion of human beings, and he felt that they needed a smarter, wiser, more powerful person to rule them, even if that ruler needed to use lies, violence, and intrigue to keep order. What, what books do you think our leaders have read? Or at least what philosophies they have embraced? <clears throat> I learned too late that you can't turn your head to cough when they've strapped it to your face, the microphone. One of the most popular genres of film and novels, especially young adult novels, if you go into the young adult section, which I have done, and look, perhaps the most common theme is dystopia. In other words, instead of utopia, where everything will be beautiful and wonderful, everything is horrible. Every, you know, it's post-apocalyptic or pre, just pre-apocalyptic, and those apocalypses take to everything from government to disease to nature turning on you. In other words, the whole concept is society is breaking down. Think of, you know, over the last decade, The Walking Dead, you know, zombie movies. Think about The Hunger Games and that whole series. And countless others fill our theaters, our screens, and our books. You have every right to ask, where did this dystopian view come from? When I was growing up, it wasn't The Hunger Games. It was Planet of the Apes. And in the original with Charlton Heston, which was so many years ago, I'm, this is not a spoiler alert. This is letting you know if you didn't see it, it's your fault. But at the very end, what does he see? He's walking on the beach. He has escaped from the intelligent apes. And he looks up and sees a half-buried Statue of Liberty. And he screams at what we must have done to let everything dissolve. 
there was also soy and green, which had dietary tips. And I'm not going to go further. But I read also in 10th grade Huxley's, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And I remember shuddering from the first page that this could not happen. And it's happening now. It starts with selective breeding, choosing eggs, choosing sperm, choosing what kind of people we want. We can do that now, to a point. Well, where did it all flow from? You can trace it back to a fourth century theologian named Augustine. One of the fathers of the Catholic Church. We love Catholics. This is not a dig on you. And one of the most influential thinkers of all time to our hurt was Augustine. He was the first to say that we were born saturated with original sin. He was the first to have a very low opinion of human beings and consider that most of them would burn forever and they had it coming. He also was the first to tell us that sex was bad, that it was awful and dirty and naughty, and that even between husband and wife, the only reason it could be there is for procreation and for no, no not bonding, not joy, uh, only for that, and everything had to be done rather reluctantly at that. He said, humans are depraved, and nothing is good. And his writings were so influential, they still saturate the Christian religious world and much of our culture to this day. You see, the early church didn't teach that babies were born riddled with original sin. The early church did not teach that your bodies were something for which you should be ashamed. In fact, for most of the first three centuries when people were baptized, they were baptized in the nude because the idea was letting off all your old clothes. Now, I don't want to do that. I really don't. I'm not trying to get back to those days. I'm just trying to imagine what you would have to, the, the mental cliff you'd have to jump off from to go from that to everything is evil and awful and hide yourself. After Augustine, they taught that babies unbaptized, if they died, they went to hell or limbo or something like that. This doctrine became a kernel around which vast swaths of theology, culture, philosophy wrapped themselves, never questioning the core, never questioning the nucleus. In fact, even in early Protestantism, see Catholics, everybody did it. They did not question that aspect of Augustine's teaching. They went with original sin as well. They went with the total depravity of all mankind and how people are just horrible, nasty things. In fact, it is one of the few foundational teachings of the Catholic churches that the Protestants did not protest, but they grabbed it. One of the founders of modern Protestantism and one of the greatest thinkers of his time was John Calvin, whose doctrines we have mentioned quite a bit in this series. This sermon is where we switch questions. The first questions were, and most of the deep dives, were what kind of God made the world? Starting today and the next two Sundays, and they get more pointed, and we say things that you do not hear in church more the next two Sundays. So tune in for those. 
I'm not even going to hint, but you're going to want to hear this because you haven't heard it in churches, and we need to. Well, John Calvin, he was a French lawyer, philosopher, and theologian. You'll find that most people back then that rose to the top were polymaths. They, they had qualifications in many things. He broke from the Catholic Church only a couple of decades before Thomas Hobbes was born. But his teachings had a great deal to do with the pessimism you find in Thomas Hobbes. Because he bought Augustine's view that everything about us is horrible. Behind the walls of a city that united around him and his teachings, Geneva, Switzerland, Calvin wrote extensively about scripture and then he overlaid that template over human beings. Let me explain. You can't get away from that. Who you are, where you were born, to whom you were born, where you were born, and when you were born has an absolute effect over the way you see the world. And we can try to strip it away. And we can yell back to the Bible. We can even yell back to the first century. But you can't get there because you're still carrying who you are. You have to understand that aspect. Well, he was awash in negativism. And in fact, they'd proven it to himself. The Europeans have been slaughtering each other in the name of God for centuries. Battles that were the most horrific ever were just, um, it, there's no description. If you want to read some of them, you might want to read the Archer series by Bernard Cornwall, one of the greatest historians slash novelists. His, his, the one most people are famous for, or know him for. Uh, he did the Sharps Chronicles about a, a British soldier, and there have to be like 20 in that. But the Archer one talks about the wars between the religions and how they treated each other in novel form and very accurately. He is very exact in getting his details correct, but they read fast. So Bernard, you, Americans would call him Bernard, which is wrong. It's Bernard Cornwall. <clears throat> But Calvin was a creature of his time, and so are we. I just felt like we needed to be honest about that. His teachings are often summarized by the acronym TULIP. Between Augustine and Calvin, we have inherited a view of our world and our very nature, which isn't pretty. We have inherited a view that we, but especially all others, are dark, twisted, and evil at their very core. Here are the five doctrines. And note the pessimism in all of these. Number one, total depravity. Every facet of every human life and personality to such an extent that we can measure are completely incapable of doing good. We can't love God. Our thinking, our emotions, our desires are out of control. We are bent on rebellion and evil and are completely unwilling to submit to God and do not look upon his will as good. And without the direct intervention of God and the action of the Holy Spirit on our hearts, we would not be able to do anything good in our lives. Two, unconditional election. God, in his kindness and grace, has decided to save some, just a portion of humanity. His decision to save this minority is completely unconditional. In other words, who he decides to save, it has nothing to do with them. 
their goodness or not, their, their work or not. He just chooses. And he doesn't decide to choose people just because they're good or they have more good in them than their neighbor. And that comes to three. Again, very pessimistic, limited atonement. Jesus didn't die for everybody. That's what he says. He only died for the elect, the chosen of God, chosen before the foundation of the world. Before you were born, Calvinism says, God chose and already decided whether Christ's blood and his death would have any effect over you at all. You see the overwhelming negativity and pessimism, and yet I never hear people address it. I'm sure they do, because I don't hear everybody. But it's just stunning that we don't talk more about this because this is the God picture most people have. And that's why when they don't believe in God, they don't believe in God. They don't believe in this God. Let's keep going. Irresistible grace. If God wants you saved, you're saved. Nothing you can do about it. Calvinists uh, say that this isn't God's intrusion on our free will, but rather his decision to change our will. If ever you want to define circular reasoning, that's the line. It's not an intrusion on our free will. It's just his decision to change our will is nonsensical. It, does, it defies logic. And then the last one of Tulip, perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. If God in his sovereignty chose a person to be saved, they are saved, period. Um, it doesn't... Uh, it, it breaks my heart because, again, we have no agency. We have nothing. It's no wonder the nations that have had Calvinism, the, the most popular and the longest, are now those that are mainly atheist. Even back in the 80s, before we moved to America, I would hear people on the street talk to me and say, well, that, you know, I don't believe in this, that, and the other. And I didn't know what to respond to them because in my church we had a limited set of question responses. Uh, an unspoken catechism. Unwritten catechism. Well, Calvinism in whole or in part is still hugely popular. The Southern Baptist Church has a strange mix of Calvinism and Arminianism. We're not talking about Jacob Arminius today. We'll get there another day. I grew up in a church tribe that sprang from what historians call the Stone-Campbell movement and other historians, uh, far fewer, call the American Restoration Movement. My church rejected Tulip, but still used Calvinist phrasings in our day-to-day lives. Things like, God's plan is perfect. God's timing is perfect. At the death of somebody, God needed another angel. As if he had to kill humans to get them. God knows what he's doing. And I hear more and more after every death, tsunami, earthquake, cancer diagnosis, job loss. This puts God directly at fault when evil strikes. Whether that evil springs from nations, nature, or individuals. Calvinists have been on Twitter to praise that God in his mercy has saved most but they also said he chose who died when Hamas flew out of Gaza. He chose which babies to die? He chose which people? And they look upon that as saying, he is all powerful. And we must. It, that does not elevate God. 
that makes him a rapist, a murderer, and a terrorist. And yes, I have had many people say that that's exactly what God is. Richard Dawkins has a whole famous paragraph, which I've read before from the stage, about how God is misogynistic, he is a father killer, he is a child killer, and just goes on and on. Where do you get that? From this. When I grew up, sermons were full of accusation and rage. I can remember so many sermons that would say something like, if Jesus comes back right now, not all of you people are going to be saved. Not all of you are going to rise up with this. You just think you are. And it was that planting of doubt constantly that if you walked into any room and said, how many of you believe you're going to heaven? Hands wouldn't go up because they're afraid it's a trap. If their hands go up, then people will point out their sins. If their hands go up, it means they're not humble. Therefore, they can't go be with Jesus. Uh, it was name, blame, and shame. How many of you grew up like that too? Your faith in your own goodness was shaken to the core. Attacked. And, and fear was used to shake you loose from the pews to come up. We didn't do an altar call. Uh, but we would call you up during an invitation song. And the idea was you'd have to come up to repent of your sins or to be baptized. Sometimes after the sermon, nobody walked forward because generally the congregations were small. We'd heard that sermon many times. And so in our tribe, sometimes the preacher would make the song leader lead the song again and again. Sometimes even interjecting between, I'm getting nods in the soundstage, interjecting between verses to beg and plead and talk about this could be your last time. This could be the last time. At one, I, I'll never forget, the guy slammed his book real loud and we all kind of levitated there for a minute. And he, and he said, that, if that had been Jesus coming back, where would you be? At anything to name, shame, blame, or frighten you out of your pew and forward. I'll never forget a preacher that did that once back in my dating days before I met Miss Cammie and therefore I squandered money dating others. Uh, not many, just the ones that I trouble hard to run fast. I could get those. And so, but we, it was a Friday night and our church was having a, a gospel meeting, good news meeting, which so ironic. Uh, and so we had to go there first and then we could go to a movie. And I remember sitting there through the third time through Just As I Am. Now, if you don't know that, that hymn, Just As I Am has some of the most beautiful words ever. I love those words. But it has a few extra verses. Six in most hymnals, five in others. And so it was sung again and again until somebody moved. But I, gotta, I, I need to ask you a question. What kind of world did God create? Remember, that was our second question. First was, what kind of God created the world? Second, what kind of world did God create? Well, let's look. We all know John. John talks about this a lot in 1 John. Last week I was out at Oak Harbor. I know you saw me preaching here. It's, um, you know, it's a miracle. Um, sometimes I pre-record. Uh, because we're everywhere. When we say where, wherever you are, there we are. We really are. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
We need to do a, a, just a really quick thing here that just you need to keep it in mind. There are two words, main words for world, translated world in our scripture. There is terra, which means the place, birds, bunnies, rain, rainbows, kids. And then there's eos, which is the system, which is the killing, the um, you know, out of control consumerism, out of control any form of economic system. That is not the one he uses here. He uses the place. Don't you remember what God said when he made it? He said, this is good. This is very good. And even the evil people of the horrific Herodian dynasty and the Roman Empire, when Jesus advents, when he comes and Christmas is what we celebrate to remember it, but we have no idea what the date was. What was God's announcement to people? All right, people, I've had it. You're dirty, you're nasty. You're... He never used any of the terms Augustine or Calvin used to describe humans and their character. He said, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. God walked in front of us, sent down his baby, and unilaterally disarmed. Because he could have killed. And he could have brought, sent down a Jesus that was full grown with a whip, with a stick, with a, but he didn't. He sent the baby. I'm not arming up. I'm coming here because I love you. In that state. But you don't hear that in these Protestant and Catholic leaders. Oh, but there's more. And we could do this a long time, but we're not going to because I think we're going to make our point. Let's go back talking about Advent. And you're going to hear a lot about Advent because I wasn't allowed to do Christmas either and I'm still catching up. Luke 2, verse 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Not just the tiny chosen, not just the elect, everybody. I tend to believe that the angel didn't lie. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll, you'll find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace on those whom his favor rests. It's good news, which means it's not tulip. It's not Calvinism. It's not the teaching of Augustine. It is God so loved the world. How about, well, I've got to go the other way. Did you guys know Matthew was on the other side? <laughs> I did too, but briefly, forgot. Matthew 6, you ever sing the wee song in your head to get to the book? Um, if, if you're not a church person, you don't know the song, but there is an index. So a table of contents. Matthew 12, 12 through 14. I'm sorry, Matthew 18, 12 and forward. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, that sheep probably had it coming, not one of the elect. No, wait, that's not what it says. Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? 
And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In this same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones perish. So why would he send them to limbo or hell? He won't. He won't. No wonder. John Wesley, the founder of the West, uh, Methodist Church, looked at George Whitfield and said, Your God is my devil. You have got to know that God loves you. And then, well, we'll just do it this way. He says in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And then when you see him next, what's he doing? He's walking every evening. As Gary brought up, Gary McDowell is from southern Indiana. Uh, and we love him. He sent us that uh, lovely devotional for our, our communion. And thank you, brother. Uh, as he brought up, God wants to be with you. And sin broke that relationship. And God didn't stomp away. What did he do? He came back and he said, all right, we're going to set up a system so that you can come back to me. And again and again, he goes and pulls back. Rather, rather than living in fear and living in pain and living in shame, know that you are loved. You are loved beyond measure. You are loved far more than you ever could imagine you could ever be loved. And if you're talking about all of your faults and all of your your misdeeds and all of your spiritual flaws, I would like for you to remember the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul was not a perfect individual. If he was, he would have used punctuation. <laughs> One of his sentences in Scripture is almost 100 words long. It, I shudder for all of you English teachers just now hearing this. <clears throat> but Paul could get angry. Paul had some issues he wouldn't talk about. But he talks about his sin openly, about what it does to him. In, in Romans 7, when he says, what I say I'll do, I don't do. What I say I'll never do, I end up doing. And he goes in detail about this, but then he goes, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? And then he speaks of Jesus. And Jesus does not come saying, let me delineate and enumerate your sins for you. He didn't do that when people walked up for healing. He looked at them and said, your sins are forgiven before they said a word. Why? Because that's what God does. He steps in front of you and lowers his fist, opens his hands. There is no rock and there's no sword in it every single time because he wants you in his family. And you already are. The universe is brought into being by the will of God. I guess you could even say the voice of God. Except for one thing. Humans. Humans are the only part of creation where God makes something by hand. Why would you think he would make something he would despise and then decide that the vast majority of them must suffer an eternal flame just because? Now do you see why atheism is a real issue? We need, to st we need to speak up. We need to say no. No, this is not acceptable. 
let us rejoice in the advent of of Christ. Bethlehem, on the cross, his return from the tomb, and by the love he still has for us. He never even said, why are you still in the room, you idiots? Well, all of us would have added that on. He just says, you know, go meet me. Meet me. I'm going to be there. Go meet me. Again and again and again. So, we're going to close with the song. I'm not going to close the, the water bottle. Those of you that are watching at home don't see that I have this gift of dropping the top of the water bottle. Oh, and then, you know, you miss out a lot not being at the soundstage. <laughs> but we are so glad you're here. You are not lesser than those at the soundstage. Maybe, maybe I need to make that very, very plain. In fact, as you saw this morning, most of our input was from outside of the soundstage because that's where 99% of our people are. Probably more like 99.9. Still, we're going to celebrate Jesus on the cross because we believe that his cross, his sacrifice was enough. It was enough. No more shame, no more blame, no more, you've never heard me say, now let me talk to you about your sins. No, I want to talk to you about my Savior. We're going to do this in a different, with a different tune. Um, we're going to use an old Scottish song, but not because it's Scottish, but because two things. Uh, Isaac Watts wrote this song in 1707, and he wrote it in a particular phrasing meter that you can apply dozens of songs or tunes to it. The same with Amazing Grace, the same sort of meter. And so this tune got attached to this song. The tune was, is normally known as The Water is Wide. Um, even though it comes from Scotland, I think Irish singers have made it far more popular. But because of him, we can leave this place smiling. And we will. <laughs>